Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 211, Why People Went on Crusade with Sharon Eastor. Last time we followed Pope Urban as he travelled to France in the summer of 1095 and spent a full year recruiting men for the crusade. The pontiff gave several major sermons where he laid out his vision for the campaign, but he also delegated the task to the French clergy, who he expected to return to their communities and spread the news. This they did, and the results were spectacular. By the time Urban returned to Italy, somewhere in the region of a 100,000 people were on the move. Now, one could write whole books on what happened and why people responded to the call, but from our perspective, we just need to get a sense of the basics. How many people went on crusade? Who were they? And who was in charge of them? And, of course, why? Why did they go? What were their motivations? The answers to these questions should help us understand the behavior of the Crusaders once they reach Byzantine soil. In order to help me sum up this extraordinary movement, I've called in some more expert help. Today, I leave you in the hands of Sharon Eastor from the History of the Crusades podcast. Sharon will give you a primer as to why people responded to the Pope's call and introduce some of the major players. Then I'll be back soon with another episode exploring these questions in more Byzantine-centric detail. Hello, History of Byzantium listeners. It's Sharon Eastor from the History of the Crusades podcast here. Robin has asked me to gatecrash his show and provide you with a rundown of the reasons why, in the closing years of the 11th century, thousands of people from Europe decided to make the arduous journey to the Middle East to seize Jerusalem for the Latin Christian Church. The catalyst for this massive military endeavour was a speech made by Pope Urban II on the 27th of November in the year 1095 in the town of Clermont in central France. Earlier in the year 1095, the Byzantine Emperor Alexius Komnenos had sent envoys to Pope Urban, imploring him to send military assistance to the Holy Land to push back against the Turks who had been pestering the Byzantine Empire and generally making a nuisance of themselves in the region. 
Pope Urban's response to this request was to make his rousing speech at Clermont, urging the noblemen of Europe to unite under the leadership of the Church and head to Jerusalem to liberate the holy city from the infidel. Pope Urban must have been a persuasive speaker as his speech and the subsequent recruitment drive he undertook across France galvanised people into action. Pretty soon, most of Europe was hit by crusader fever, as tens of thousands of fighters made preparations to get their affairs in order and leave for the Holy Land in August the following year. Pope Urban's pitch was directed predominantly at senior figures in the upper levels of the aristocracy. He wanted this to be a campaign led by the church, so no leaders of kingdoms or nations were invited to join the crusade. Instead, the papacy aimed to hoover up the princes of Europe, or the members of the senior aristocracy who possessed both the resources and the experience to become useful participants in the expedition. This brings us to the question, why would a fighting man in Europe decide to down tools, place his life on hold and place himself in financial difficulty in many cases to go all the way to Jerusalem on behalf of the papacy. Current estimates place the number of men who departed Europe on the First Crusade as high as 80,000. Obviously, we can't know the motives of each and every one of them, but the lure of Jerusalem and the idea of embarking on a mission sanctioned by the church to save Jerusalem and liberate it from unbelievers was an intoxicating enticement. Also on offer was the fact that Pope Urban had declared that any fighter who embarked on the crusade would become a soldier of Christ, would be blessed, and would receive remissions of all of their sins. Basically, the carrots dangled in front of the fighting men of Europe were in the form of spiritual, not financial, inducements. The church wouldn't be paying the men to fight on its behalf. On the contrary, crusaders were expected to pay their own way, supplying their own horses, armour and weapons, and, importantly, their own provisions. The departure date, set for nine months after Pope Urban's speech, ensured that the armies of Christ would be leaving Europe just after the late summer harvest, meaning both that supplies of food would be plentiful and those who didn't have the means to carry their provisions for the long journey on baggage carts could instead bring gold, jewels or other valuables with them to trade with locals for food throughout the journey. The fact that, for many common fighters, the inducement to go on crusade wasn't the lure of riches or land was borne out by the fact that many men mortgaged themselves to the hilt or took out substantial loans to finance their journey. Even if some of them had hoped to recoup these expenses via loot or plunder along the way, the fact that tens of thousands of other fighters would be competing for a share of any loot which was on offer 
meant that the chances of recovering your financial losses would be slim. Having said this, though, many second sons, or men who weren't set up to inherit their family's ancestral lands, or men who were not really enjoying the path or profession chosen for them by their families, likely saw the crusade as an opportunity to create a more palatable future for themselves. This was certainly the case with one of the main players, Baldwin of Bologna. Baldwin was the third son born to an aristocratic French family. Since his birth, he had been destined for a life in the church, but he had found that not at all to his liking. Instead, he ended up serving in the court of his brother, Duke Godfrey de Bologna, who, as the second eldest son in the family, held extensive estates and property. Both Godfrey and Baldwin took the cross and joined Pope Urban's crusade, and both men will end up playing major roles in the crusade and in the events which followed. Both brothers, however, had distinctly different motivations. Godfrey was pious, polite, well-mannered, and a generally likeable sort of person. He basically funded his campaign by selling his entire duchy to the church. Baldwin was pretty much the polar opposite of his brother. He had no lands or income of his own, yet craved luxuries and excess. He was intensely ambitious and viewed the crusade not as a chance to serve the church, but to advance his interests beyond the feeble offerings available to him in France. Indicating perhaps that he had no intention of returning from the Middle East, Baldwin's wife and children accompanied him on the long journey to the Holy Land. The other main players in the crusade were a mixture of the raw ambition of Baldwin and the obedient piety of Duke Godfrey. One of the more interesting of the remaining leaders of the crusade was Beaumont of Taranto, a Norman from southern Italy. The son of the legendary Robert Guiscard, Beaumont's life took an early turn for the worse when his parents' marriage was declared annulled and invalid while he was a child, which rendered him illegitimate. But a small thing like being an illegitimate son didn't seem to hold Beaumont back. He fought in his father's army and soon rose through its ranks to become a talented military commander, with one of his celebrated victories being against the Byzantine emperor Alexius Komnenos in the siege of Durazzo. In fact, Bohemond ended up finding himself in command of the entirety of his father's forces in the Balkans and notched up quite a few victories against the Byzantine Empire. Which probably made it a little awkward when Bohemond was one of the princes of Europe who put up his hand to come to the assistance of the Byzantine Empire in its battle against the Turks in the Holy Land. Bohemond was one of the most experienced military commanders to embark on the crusade and brought with him an army of talented 
battle-hardened knights and foot soldiers, but you would have to say that his motivation was more in the Baldwin camp than in the Godfrey camp. He didn't seem to be particularly concerned about atoning for his sins or serving the church, but the thought of carving out a little piece of the Holy Land for himself was something that he was very, very interested in. Now, while all these experienced, seasoned fighting men are busy preparing themselves to depart on Pope Urban's crusade, one large bunch of crusaders has already started its journey and is laboriously making its way to Constantinople. This ragtag bunch of peasants, comprising of women and children, as well as men of fighting age, are being led by a roughly dressed, unwashed, scruffy man who is riding a donkey. This unwashed, scruffy leader of peasants has become known to history as Peter the Hermit, and Peter the Hermit has managed to get a jump on the main crusader army, leading his force of thousands of peasants on the long, long road to the Holy Land. Now, Peter the Hermit is one of the more interesting characters in the Crusades. His crusade, known now as the People's Crusade or the Peasants' Crusade, ends in a predictable giant faceplant with the deaths of most of the unfortunate souls who made it to Constantinople under Peter's leadership in their first military confrontation with the Turks. Peter himself, though, survived. In fact, Peter the Hermit is like the Middle Eastern Crusade's whack-a-mole. Just when you think he is done for and out of the picture, he pops up unexpectedly somewhere in the narrative, only to disappear and pop up again later. Anyway, back to the question I'm meant to be answering. If you were a peasant working the land in France in the year 1096, why would you leave your home and possessions and follow a raggedy man on a donkey to faraway Constantinople? Well, I guess I don't need to tell you that life for the average peasant at this point in time was no picnic. It was monotonous, difficult and unrelenting and there were no realistic pathways which could lead you out of your life as a peasant to something a little easier and more palatable. So when a raggedy man rode in on a donkey to your town or village and called for volunteers to accompany him to Jerusalem to liberate the Holy Land from evil Muslims, you may have sat up and listened. And you may have sat up even more and listened even harder when he told you that when you had completed this task on behalf of the Christian church, then you would be rewarded for your faith and could live out the rest of your life in the land of milk and honey surrounding Jerusalem. Unfortunately, almost none of what Peter the Hermit was preaching to the peasants was true. Most mainstream historians today point to the appeal for help from Emperor Alexius as the origins of the call to arms by Pope Urban II, 
but that didn't stop people at the time and people down the ages from pointing the finger at Muslim atrocities towards Christians and holy relics in the Middle East and using anti-Muslim sentiment to galvanise the faithful into action. Peter the Hermit must have been a persuasive speaker. Up to 20,000 people, mainly peasants, many of whom were women and children, answered his call to arms and decided to march with him to Jerusalem. Now, these were not the type of people Emperor Alexius or Pope Urban hoped to attract to their cause. Most of the people participating in the People's Crusade or Peasants' Crusade had no military experience, no means of supporting themselves, and no real idea of where Jerusalem was or just how long it would take to walk there from France. Coupled with the fact that Peter the Hermit embarked on his crusade just after Easter, many months before the harvests were ready to bring in, it's not difficult to guess the outcome of this epically bad venture. Most participants were having serious second thoughts about having abandoned their lives as peasants to follow Peter by the time they reached the Hungarian border, and those who did manage to make it to Constantinople and across the Bosphorus were annihilated by the Turks during their first military encounter. Although, if you were a woman or a child... Instead of being killed, you may have been captured and sold into slavery. So, there you have it, a quick rundown of the motivations of some of the participants in the First Crusade. Of course, if you want to know the whole story, you can track down my podcast, The History of the Crusades, where you can also learn about the crusade against the Cathars and the Inquisition against the Cathars in southern France during the 13th and 14th centuries, and the Baltic Crusades. I'm currently working on a new podcast about the Spanish Reconquista, so keep an eye out for that one as well. Just a short word of warning, though, my early episodes have a volume issue. The terrible microphone I purchased cheap on eBay broke around episode 19, and when I replaced it, the quality improved slightly. Episode 76 is when things improve properly, though. My laptop had packed it in, and I went for broke and purchased a bunch of proper recording equipment, so you'll need to amp up your volume switch until episode 76. Okay, that's it from me. Thanks for having me on, Robin, and it's back to you. Bye. 
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.